part of what's promised is the Holy Spirit who affects in us those very things we need, that is, rebirth. And so you have this pinch point. If that's the promise, how come all don't come to faith? Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 87, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor. Thank you for tuning in. Well, here's a subject that should certainly be interesting. The conditionality of the covenant of grace. Are there conditions in this covenant and where we stand in our relationship with God? Continue listening as Dr. Beach and Dr. Venema flush this out just a little more for us. Hello, everyone. This is Mark Beach. I'm joined here with my colleague, Dr. Cornell Venema, and we want to talk about the covenant of grace and very specifically about uh, the nature of conditionality in the covenant of grace. Within the Reformed tradition, this has been an area in which there's been a diversity of opinion and its practical uh, outcome and how you finally decide the nature of conditions, whether there's conditions, how that all plays out, has shown up even with, uh, if I may put it this way, uh, denominational divisions. There's different theological heroes from aspects or strands of the Reformed tradition in which these theologians answer this question uh, distinctly, diversely, and there are subsequent even divisions surrounding it. The question is when you're baptized and God makes a promise to be God to you and your children after you, And if you would explore any of the Reformed confessional documents on what's being promised in baptism, the issue concerns the nature of that promise, uh, the sign and seal character of that promise, the assurance we ought to derive from that promise, the also the call to faith and repentance and walk of obedience that's assigned with being identified with God and assured of his blessing and salvation in Christ. All of these come together and bring about this issue of what's our status? What's our status as baptized persons? And uh, what it takes for that baptism to reach its fruition and uh, come to full effect? Is it something in us we must do in order for baptism to be good? Is it a status we enjoy and we live out of that promise and therefore uh, we live in the victory of what's promised there? It, I'm, I'm deliberately raising a lot of questions because this question, this issue of the covenant the promise of the covenant, the conditions that go with the promise is one that has uh, perplexed various Reformed people, and it ends up even having repercussions in how they have assurance of faith or lack assurance of faith or presume on assurance of faith. So it's a very practical uh, sort of question. 
So that's a basic introduction to some of the issues surrounding this question. Another way of putting the question is if you affirm, as for example, classically the canons of Dort affirm, that God's purpose of election, God's electing in his grace and mercy of those whom he's pleased to save, if if you affirm, think you and TULIP, as bad as that acronym is, unconditional election is the first main head of doctrine. So it's not something I've done or I've I first need to act in some fashion, and God foreknowing the way I'm going to act, foreseeing that, gives it his imprimatur. No, it's, as Augustine put it, God doesn't find elect persons. He makes elect persons. The, the, the act is God's and God's alone. Apart from from before the foundation of the world and his grace and mercy in Christ, he chooses to save his people. So we speak of unconditional. No conditions need to be met by us in order to our being in the category of an elect person or persons or a, a member of God's elect people. But we know that in the work of God's grace throughout the course of the history of redemption through the covenant that he makes first with Abraham and is administered diversely over time and fulfilled ultimately in Christ, that those whom he saves, those to whom he speaks his word of grace and confirms that word of grace sacramentally in the New Testament, the sacrament of baptism, and as well the Lord's Supper, there is a responsibility on the part of those with whom God covenants and who come under that covenant's administration. You can use the language of the privilege of that relationship that God establishes with us and with our children. There are also corresponding responsibilities. And this is where the debates that Mark mentioned that have gone on and continue to go on among Reformed churches about the permissibility of the use of the language of condition if I may put it simply, if you're called through the gospel and the word of the covenant with its promises calls for the response, the obligation of embracing the promise in the way of faith, doing so in the way of a faith that also is um, accompanied by repentance, faith and repentance are obliged. What's the nature of the obligation? May we speak of the call summons to faith and repentance as these are the conditions where the problem really becomes acute if you don't properly parse out what you mean in saying if you say yes to that question, you might land yourself in a place where suddenly the salvation of those whom God saves depends upon something they do by way of meeting conditions to which they're obligated, but that is no longer a work of God's grace. I mean, it's it's sort of captured well by Augustine, and this is what offended Pelagius. He says, you know, demand what you will, but give what you demand in his prayer to the Lord. In other words, the very things demanded of us are the things God promises, and he fulfills that promise by doing what he's promised, giving us and our children the grace that he declares in his word and confirms by way of sacrament. 
Yeah, we feel the pinch of this question of we're elect of God by grace, we're in the covenant of grace by God, and how do those two coincide or fit together? Because we know that we can have persons who receive the outward sign and seal of the covenant of grace in the way of baptism now, who whose subsequent life doesn't walk in faith, doesn't embrace the promises of the gospel, breaks covenant, walks away from covenant, and some even perish and die in their unbelief. So what was promised? What's what's the and what happens within the Reformed tradition is some take the nature of the promise and they underplay what's promised. Because what's promised is, I'm your God, you're my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. What's promised is renewal in Christ. What's promised is cleansing in Christ by his blood. What's promised is, I'm owned by you, and you can call on me as the God who who's faithful to you. I mean, salvation's promised. Rebirth is promised. Washing, forgiveness is promised. And yet not all come to faith or continue to walk in a faith they seem to once enjoy or exhibit. Oh, well, here's the solution. Let's just make the promise something small. Let's make the promise a proposal. Let's make the promise a covenantal free offer of the gospel. So God's not really promising anything. He's waiting for you to meet your obligation. And now the promise is good. Now the promise takes. Well, that starts sounding rather Arminian in in, uh, its implications, even if that's not what's intended. But the solution is to doctor down the promise. The other solution is to say, well, God promises what these, this robust promise is promised only to the elect. So in effect, what happens to a, a covenant child or an adult who gets baptized and receives the sign and seal of the promise as non-elect, nothing was promised. There's no conditions because nothing was promised. It's all grace. The other, well, very little was actually promised until you make it good. Or still another version of it, everything is promised. If you're baptized, you're saved, count yourself in Christ, it's all good to go. But now you need to continually meet conditions to keep the promise valid and good for you. So sort of an in by grace kept in by works. Well, my reading of the Reformed tradition is none of those versions I've just talked about was the consensus view. They were quite aware that covenant and election, they coincide at many points, but not all together, because you can have undetected hypocrites within the church. Uh, they seem to be believers, but aren't. Uh, some walked with you as believers for a time or subsequently disciplined out of the church because of unbelief and, and uh, a reckless life and a life of unbelief. Oh, are God's promises now invalid, never given? Well, the Reformed tradition, the coinage of the term came a bit later, but they argued for a dual aspect view, a dual aspect view of the covenant, that some indeed only participate in the covenant outwardly, 
in its outward ministrations, in the blessings of being part of the Christian church, hearing preaching, Christian nurture, prayer, all of that, but fail to come under the saving essence, the very blessed uh, saving effects of the covenant. And that's where this question then, what we mean by conditions. And as Dr. Venema was saying, well, finally, using that uh, Augustine phrase, there are conditions. You, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. You need to walk with him. You need to persevere in faith. You can't just believe once. But when you go to the Heidelberg Catechism, even about uh, should infants be baptized and thus receive the sign and seal of the covenant, by baptism, the sight of the, uh, it says, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, these infants, uh, believers, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. But prior to that, it says, they are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood, and they're promised the Holy Spirit who works faith. And this gets to this condition thing. Part of what's promised is the Holy Spirit who affects in us those very things we need, that is, rebirth, (laughs) and the application of Christ's work for us by which we're saved. And so you have this pinch point. Well, if that's the promise, how come all don't come to faith? Because the promise is robust. It's not a mere proposal. It's a promise, though, that comes with conditions, but conditions that the Holy Spirit himself, by grace, needs to work in us. Maybe Dr. Venema can talk more about that. Well, you know, you can get into some fairly fine distinctions, but that's what theology does. And it can be helpful, not always helpful. But even the terminology, conditional, conditionality, conditions, there are various kinds. I could say to someone that unless you do this, the follow following will occur by way of consequence. No Reformed, even the most hyper-Calvinist, heavy accent on unconditional election and complete identification of all members with whom God covenants as those persons, uncondi- they don't like the language of condition ever. Interestingly, they will say that faith and repentance, to which we're obliged in response, to what God promises and gives, are necessary instruments. They're instrumental. A rose they're, they're, by any other name. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and what is a necessary instrument? It's a, it's a, another Latin phrase that's helpful here is conditio sine qua non. It's that without which not. Paul says it in Romans chapter 10, shortly after he's in chapter 9, given us about the most robust statement of unconditional election that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. But he says, in order to be saved in the ordinary work of God's grace in the course of the history of redemption, you have to hear the word. How, how can they believe unless they've heard? And how will they hear unless someone preached to them? If you call upon the name of the Lord, it's the English rendering of the Greek, but it's a conditional, if you believe. Well, the children of the promise, those whom God saves and elects and purposes to save, they will be brought to faith ordinarily in time through the gospel word and sacrament. But 
to use the expression conditio sine qua non, that which is necessary to their instrumentally, now that's the reason for the word instrument, it's not a cause in the strict sense. Some conditions are in the strong sense of the term, if you do this, that will be the cause for the following consequence. Reformed theologians want to use condition with quotation marks by which they mean to say that you're obliged. I've been using the language of the gospel calls you to do something. It welcomes you, invites you, it summons you to faith and repentance. And they are therefore necessary to, but they're not necessary in the sense of your doing it is done in your own strength and power. It isn't actually the doing that flows out of the promise God made. I think that's part of what Dr. Beach was wanting to say, that the the promise is not a proposal. It's a it's a, in the language of our forms as it relates to baptism, don't treat the one baptized as though, well, maybe, maybe not. I remember a gentleman in the church was always a little unhappy with um, the language of the form because it talks about the all the elect, join the elect in life eternal. He thought that was way too positive and affirmative and maybe even presumptive. And I responded to him. I said, well, what do you want the form to say? That, well, more than likely, or at least there's a good possibility that uh, everything that we see here in the sacrament visibly representing and sealing the promise means nothing, really, because there remains something to be done by the one baptized. Now, this gets the, the, the theological in, in our, how this issue is formulated is one thing. But in the actual practice of Reformed churches, I'm uh, afraid that the view of baptism and of the promise that baptism signifies and seal is really reduced to proposal. And I'll, I'll illustrate my point. If you were to ask someone, what's the most important moment in a person's relationship with the Lord in time. Baptism, if it's in this particular case an infant baptism, or profession of faith. And don't misunderstand me, I'm not diminishing the importance of profession of faith, but I want to view that profession of a baptized child of the covenant as in consequence of, or an after effect, or a response that is born out of the reality of what was promised to them in their baptism. It's the expected response. It's the ordinary and proper normative response. It's not a, you can go either way. No, you've, you've been incorporated. And It's the work of the Holy Spirit promised. Right. Having its effect in that covenant child. <laughs> there's, a, there's a statement of Gerhard's Voss that has always stuck with me kind of captures the difficulty here, but he says, God's grace is sovereign, a.k.a. unconditional, but it's not arbitrarily communicated. It's not just a hit-and-miss affair. It's a grace that comes to manifestation and is communicated through the gospel word and the sacraments that accompany the word. And we shouldn't second-guess or inappropriately doubt or regard those who profess their faith or, in another aspect of things, have been baptized and profess their faith as, oh, we really can't be too sure about them. They're 
and it's almost thought to be spiritually uh, commendable to empty out what has been promised in the gospel and signified a seal again in baptism until and unless something is done of some significance, really of ultimate significance, by the one who is the recipient. That That's what some of the discussion has focused on when he said, well, you've emptied it out. It's no longer a true promise. It's as Dr. Beach nicely puts it, it's just a proposal. It's a blank check. It, it doesn't do anything for you unless you add something to it and render it efficacious. And that's your action, not God's. That's a kind of reformed covenantalism that borders on Arminianism. But the answer to the the worry about Arminianism at that point is not to go in the sort of hyper-Calvinist direction and recognize that part of the conundrum difficulty here is that in the Covenant of Grace's administration, as Dr. Beach said very well, we may not in a lazy, presumptuous fashion uh, fail to draw a distinction between the covenant as to its efficacy and fruition in the elect, and that there are scattered among and there may be within and under the administration of the covenant. All kinds of formulations are employed. You know, Bavink, I think, uses the language. So they're in, but not of the covenant. They're under, but not or to Bel- Belgian Confession, we'll use the language that the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant community, may have within its ranks some who are externally hypocrites and others who are not genuinely and properly and will ultimately be excluded from the community as God alone ultimately knows. it. That's part of this problem. I mean, who knows as God knows. But how do we proceed in time? We mustn't proceed with a question mark in our mind. We should proceed always on the proper basis with confidence that what God has promised is true, and it's true for the persons to whom the promise is made. And let's continue to rest in those promises of our covenant God. Many thanks to Dr. Beach and Dr. Venema for their contributions and the variety of topics they've addressed over the past few weeks. I hope you, our listeners, have profited from them, as have I. Next on the calendar is Dr. Alan Strange, professor of church history, to lead us in a series on church discipline, one of the crucial marks of the church, as the Belgic Confession tells us. Uh, What is the basis of it, and how is it manifested in the lives of church members? Join Dr. Strange next time for that conversation. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.